0: Listening to Sarah McCoy, and this is Session Four of my Genesis podcast. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma, for over forty years, and I love the way God's Word shows itself practical to today, time after time. Our subject is the Tower of Babel, so come with me to the eleventh chapter of Genesis, and we'll read eleven verses. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. The east refers to where the people were after Noah's Ark, which would have been around the mountain range of Ararat in what's now modern-day Turkey. And then coming south and also west, they went to the land that is now modern-day Iraq. Verse 3, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So this reflects the availability of the materials of the area. There aren't many stones in the Iraq area where they were, and so they baked bricks and Since it is an area that's rich in petroleum products, and there are some places where that comes to the surface in the form of tar pits, then they had the bitumen. Verse 4, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So you see at the end of verse 4, they're trying to avoid scattering out. In fact, ancient cities were often dominated by a temple that had a tower, and those were called ziggurats. The tower had a base that was bigger around than the top, and it was probably dedicated to some deity. And the idea was that it would be convenient for the God to come down to his temple and bless the people or receive worship for them. Um, Some of the Mesopotamian names for the ziggurats that existed were the house of the link between heaven and earth or the house of the foundation platform of heaven and earth or the house of the mountain of the universe. So... One of those in particular is the Anu Ziggurat, and uh, that one dates back to around 4,000 B.C., located in present-day Iraq. But at any rate, this idea that they didn't want to disperse and they wanted to congregate in a city seems to be in direct defiance and rebellion to the commands that God had given previous people in Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. So we go back to Genesis 1, And God is speaking to Adam and his wife. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then the covenant that he made with Noah and his family after the flood in Genesis 9-1 begins with God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the earth. So we see a sad progression here. When Adam and his wife sinned against God, they were trying to be like him. But when the people of Babel began to defy God, they wanted to make him like themselves. They wanted something convenient so that God, like a buddy, could come down to the tower. So then we continue on. We've first seen these words that are disobedient. We'll call that part one disobedient tongues. And now we're in Genesis 11, verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. That's interesting wording there. We know that God is always fully aware of everything that's going on. He's omnipresent. But this language helps us to understand that now he is officially taking a particular situation under consideration because there is some rebellion or sin that is, so grievous that it threatens to thwart his plan if it's allowed to to go on. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Isn't it interesting that God there recognized the great power that mankind possesses when people are all on the same page, when they're unified with each other. Verse 7, Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. Well, we know from the New Testament, from the writings of the words of Jesus and Paul and Peter, that words have great power and people can accomplish great things when they are unified for good. After the Last Supper, Jesus prayed a very famous prayer in John 17 for his people before he went to the cross. And one of the things he said repeatedly, and we can see an example of it in the 11th verse, is for them to be unified. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Then you look in 1 Corinthians 1.10, at the writings of Paul, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. What's interesting to me is if you take that scripture where he's begging the people to stay unified and you look at it in the Old King James, he says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. He uses this euphemism, or that's the way it was translated into Old English back then, for being on the same page and united, speak the same thing. So we see here, Again, the power of language. And he goes on to say, And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Peter, in his first epistle, 1 Peter 3, verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Well, how do we know if we have unity of mind? If I can't read your mind, how am I going to know if we're basically in agreement on things? Well, I'll know when you tell me what you're thinking, and then I compare it to my thoughts. It's by speech that we recognize that we are united. And in the Old Testament example, when the people gathered together in rebellion against God, Then he disrupted this unity of language. We go on in Genesis 11, verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Now, I don't know if that happened in five minutes or one week or six months or a couple of years, and we can certainly wonder how this all ties together with what linguists tell us that they are understanding about the history and evolution of many languages, but we do have it here from the authority of God's word that it was his plan and purpose at a specific time to begin to disunite rebellious people by introducing various languages. So in verse 9, it goes on, therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. And so God was going to have his way in this particular situation one way or the other. And if the people were not willing to disperse on their own, then he would break that bond of unity that they had with each other through language by disrupting their language. So we started out in part one with disobedient tongues, and now we have disruptive tongues. And it's interesting to me that when you look in the New Testament, we can see divine tongues. When you look at the day of Pentecost, In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. That implies unity. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Then, after that marvelous experience of the initial indwelling of the Spirit in the lives of believers, Peter preached a famous sermon with great boldness. And at the end of that sermon, in verses 38 and 39 of Acts 2, and then also verse 41... He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So we see how God used tongues in both the Old Testament and the New, or how God used languages in the Old Testament and in the New. In the Old Testament, people started out unified, but then they disobeyed God, and so the tongues that God gave them disrupted communication, and that resulted in people filling the earth. Isn't it interesting in the New Testament that once again, people were unified? The 120 that were in the upper room that had waited Those days, until the Feast of Pentecost, after the resurrection of Christ, and the people, instead of disobeying and being in rebellion, like they had in the Old Testament, were all obeying the Lord to stay there and wait until the promise was given. And then the tongues that were given, instead of disrupting communication, they facilitated communication And Christians filled the earth. James says, in James 3, 3 through 12, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. So he's comparing an evil tongue to a fire. And yet on the day of Pentecost, when tongues were given, They came as flames of fire. Doesn't that show you the incredible power of the word? But James goes on, verse 6, It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Jesus has some important words in Matthew 12, verses 34b through 37. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they've spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. What is the bottom line, then, of this story of the Tower of Babel? For me, it makes me pray, O God, bind us together in unity of word and action for your glory, not for our own. If this podcast has been a blessing to you, please pass it on.